0: Well, this is the week for giving thanks, and I want to go ahead and thank our sponsor, Medtronic. They are the proud sponsor of this Inside EMS podcast. Every emergency call brings a new opportunity to make a difference. Learn how capnography monitoring from Medtronic can help at medtronic.com slash EMS. Another person that I am thankful for is my good friend, the world traveler, hanging out in world famous. Fort Worth, Texas, Kelly Grayson, KG, how are you doing?
1: I'm good, brother. About to, about to head over to the convention center as soon as we're done and, and get ready for my talk. So, what are you hitting them with today? What's the big, what's I, the big talk? We're, we're going to have two lectures that uh, kind of build on each other. One is called How Vital Are Vital Signs? Um, moving Beyond the Numbers. And the other one is Treat the Monitor and the Patient. Clinical Correlation of Monitor Waveforms. Show them how to use some indirect measures of, of perfusion. Uh, to uh, beyond just the the numbers of uh, of things, how to use the pleth waveform, how to use a capnography waveform to predict fluid responsiveness and that sort of thing. So,
0: it's gonna be gonna be fun. No, the way you describe it, it sounds like a real toe tapper. So, <laughs> yeah,
1: You know, when you talk yeah, it's about kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, well, you talk about you know perfusion. One of the things that I had a conversation with someone uh, just the other day and I think that there was some confusion and I think it would make for a good show is we were talking about the difference between bell's palsy and stroke and you know yeah. how we're going to go ahead and and differentiate between or how do we treat different well I was asking them I'm like so so tell me the difference of of you know what you're going to see with a stroke and there was really a little bit of um I don't know maybe uncomfortableness or uneasiness as they weren't able necessarily to describe the different types of stroke and then specifically how they were going to, you know, treat them. So I thought, Kelly, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, since this is the uh, week of education in uh, Texas, I thought it would be good to talk a little bit about stroke and since you're the foremost expert in, I don't know what to say, but you're foremost expert in something, but uh, we'll see how that works out. But uh, you know, I thought it would be cool kinda of to talk about stroke and to kind of talk a little bit about the differences because you know, mm-hmm. if if you know, this one uh paramedic was having some challenges, are there any other paramedics that may have some challenges with that as well? Well the answer may be yes, so we don't want that to happen, of course. So, you know, Kelly, there are two there are two different types of stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, we have ischemic stroke, we have hemorrhagic stroke. First off, give them the definition of ischemic stroke.
1: Well, an ischemic stroke is an occlusive crisis. They, there is a, a clot that is formed in, a, in a, uh, one of the cerebral blood vessels, and it's, uh, it's similar in nature to, uh, to a, an MI. It's, it's a clot that blocks downstream blood flow and therefore oxygenation to the, to the tissues uh, and ischemia and eventually injury and, and infarction set in. Uh, whereas on the other hand, a, a hemorrhagic stroke is a rupture of one of those blood vessels and you get the sequelae from, from lack of blood flow downstream of that rupture, uh, just like you would in an occlusive stroke, but you also get the, the space occupying effect of, of the growing, uh, the, the growing hemorrhage, uh, putting pressure on, on surrounding tissues and, and that sort of thing. So, uh, hemorrhagic strokes can be quite devastating.
0: Yeah, we think about that from the standpoint of a hemorrhagic stroke. I mean, those are really the ones that become uh, more fatal. I mean, the individuals that, Mm -hmm. you know, basically you start flooding the brain with, uh, you know, that enclosed cranium with fluid. And uh, it really is going to be devastating devastating and this is where we're going to see those challenges but so when we think about this from a standpoint of an inclusive stroke large vessel occlusion could be a non-large vessel occlusion as well when we start to go through our processes of assessment is there a real big difference, in your opinion, between the assessments you'll need to do for an occlusive stroke or for a hemorrhagic stroke? I mean, it, it, you know, I said that if you have a hemorrhagic stroke, you're basically going to have blood that's going to fill the cranium, that's going to, uh, yeah. you know, push on the brain, and this is really where that devastation comes from, but we don't know how big that rupture is to, uh, you know, ensure that, uh, you know, that that's going to happen right away where you start to see the posturing and so on and so forth,
1: but do we handle it any different? I don't know that we, uh, um, it pre-hospitally. No, I don't know that we handle it any different, uh, um, in my experience, in assessing these people, the the hemorrhagic strokes, in my experience, seem seem a little more toxic in appearance than than patients with occlusive strokes. You you don't typically see an occlusive stroke, the thunderclap headache that you see in in uh, hemorrhagic strokes, and and you're unlikely to see the posturing and uh, and the 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 effects of of uh, rising intracranial pressure and the pupillary changes, and that sort of thing. So. I, I think that uh, most EMTs, if, when they run across a patient that had a profound hemorrhagic stroke, you know, that red light flashes pretty quick, uh, <clears throat> even before you actually start thinking about stroke. Uh, whereas in occlusive strokes, uh, they, they're obviously just as sick, but they don't give you that sense of uh, this patient's going to die right this very second. Treatment-wise, I, I don't know other than, than to recognize that what we're dealing with is something beyond our capability to stabilize uh, and, and treat the ABCs and get the patient to a comprehensive stroke center. Um, in the hospital, the treatment going to vary uh, fairly dramatically. Um, there's not much they can do treatment-wise for, for hemorrhagic strokes other than in some of them. And of course, they can evacuate the bleeding and, and relieve pressure that way, or, or, or clips can be applied for, for some of your subarachnoid hemorrhages and whatnot, but, but uh, mainly it's pain relief and, and rehab. Uh, but on the other hand, you can you can intervene emergently for, for occlusive strokes, and, and that's the key to their care is getting them to a, a facility that can perform that uh, in as quick a fashion as you can.
0: Yeah, and when we think about that from the standpoint of occlusive strokes or hemorrhagic strokes, you know, and I think that stroke centers really are... Uh, you know the place to go just like when we think about cardiac centers for heart attacks yeah and we really don't know we've really got to be able to have great assessment skills last week we talked about assessment and but we've got to have great assessment skills when we're trying to figure out where we're gonna go I mean just uh, stroke centers are really you know the best place to take patients that are having a stroke because if it is a ischemic stroke they're going to be able to use tPA and we'll talk a little bit about that treatment here in a minute but you also need to have a neurologist on staff that's going to be able to do some type of surgical intervention with a hemorrhagic stroke. And when we think about this, just just so you know out there, uh, if we look at that literature, you're going to see that occlusive strokes make up about 80% of all strokes, which means that the remaining 20, and that's where we learned math in New York City, Kelly, so 80% of 20 <laughs> make 100. Um there, uh, you're going to have, uh, you know, hemorrhagic strokes. So when we flip this coin, how often are we truly seeing hemorrh- hemorrhagic strokes? But again, oh, this is where, but this is where our assessment skills are going to come in. And also, we've got to think about transient ischemic attacks (TIAs). This is an occlusive stroke, and uh, usually, what happens, and just for people, you know, our body has, you know, a, a mechanism that allows us to, you know, create clotting and one of the challenges is that sometimes that clotting is going to, you know, cause these occlusive strokes. And when you have a TIA, there's an occlusion that is keeping that blood flow from moving, and you start to see the symptoms of stroke. You'll start to see the facial yeah. drooping. You'll start to see the, the, the drifting of the arms. You'll start to see some, um, you know, some differences in the facial movements or, you know, the eyes or whatever it is but usually what's going to happen is this is going to resolve itself and uh, you know people are going to uh, really revert back to normal I gotta tell you man if people are having TIA's this should be the biggest snooze button because it truly is the uh, you know the wake-up call that says we're gonna have to watch this because this could turn out to be a very very bad thing you know here in the future and I think that this is a great wake-up call same thing with angina you know we know that angina is is you know uh, the step before a lot of people get into the big one and uh, so I I think when it comes to this again your assessment skills really come down to you Mm -hmm. developing being the ultimate detective of the body and this is where knowing the signs and the symptoms and then basically how you're going to treat and manage uh, comes in Kelly
1: yeah You know, I encountered this with a with a friend's family member just the other day. He messaged me for advice on what to do because uh, a a close family member was having had experienced a TIA, and it wasn't her first. But they didn't want to go to the hospital. And and I said, look, man, you know, you need to treat this as a warning sign, which is what it is, and 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 uh, intervene and, and get the patient to the hospital. Uh, the risk versus reward ratio there is is uh, way on the side of reward. Um, at most, you you waste a, a few hours and and an insurance deductible if you go to the hospital and it turns out that there's nothing they can do for you. But but um, you know, a lot of these patients that have quote unquote TIAs. Uh, are actually having small lacunar strokes, um, and and a, a lot of small strokes equals a big stroke. Eventually, we tend to downplay the seriousness of, of uh, these neurological symptoms unless they're just glaring at us, like like you would see in a in a large vessel occlusion, uh, the the straight up uh, hemiparesis or hemiplegia, and the, and the gaze deviation and the dysarthria and and and, uh, and that sort of thing, but. Uh, these smaller strokes are also uh, uh, fairly significant events that need to be medically evaluated, and, and convincing people that this is a uh, that this is a problem has sometimes been a prob- uh, a difficulty for me on the ambulance.
0: Yeah, so a bit ago, Kelly, you know, we talked about the different types of stroke centers, and and I did mention that you know you need to make the determination are they able just mm-hmm. to perform um, treatment for you know. Um, for occlusive strokes, or are they able to do, uh, you know, they have a neurologist on staff, so some type of surgical intervention. There, there, are, there are different, I don't know if everybody knows, but there are different type of hospital designations for stroke. There is a primary stroke center, and basically they have access to neurology for consultant, for surgical, they have TPA and so on. Uh, they also use uh, telehealth as well if they need to uh, thrombectomy capable stroke centers, their ability to perform thrombectomy with staff on call, meaning that they have to be in there an X amount of time to perform the procedures, and there's a comprehensive stroke center which they're able to perform more than one uh, or more than two actually simultaneous. Uh, treatments with staff that are in-house. Think about it from the standpoint of trauma designation. A level one trauma center means everybody is in-house. Level two trauma center means they have to respond the next amount of time. Well, it's the same thing with, uh, it's the same thing with stroke designation as well.
1: Well, my my issue where where I work is that there is a lack of comprehensive stroke centers, and for that matter, thrombectomy capable stroke centers in Louisiana. Uh, I can count the thrombectomy capable stroke centers on uh, uh, on one hand. Um, so quite often, you're 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 even if you transported straight to one, uh, you detect a patient with a large vessel occlusion, you go straight to a thrombectomy capable stroke center, you might be two hours away. Uh, at minimum, and comprehensive stroke centers. I think we maybe have one or two, and those would be uh, our our uh, higher tier uh, university medical centers. Our you know Louisiana only has two uh, level one trauma centers. So we do a lot of what we call drip and ship. Uh, we we get to these patients, and and most of the patients in in our uh, our hospitals in our catchment area where I work, are not even, can't even be considered primary stroke centers. Uh, they have a podiatrist on call, moonlighting in the ER, and they have a, uh, um, they have a Telerad where they can uh, ship a, a CT scan or whatever to a radiologist and have them look it over and then speak to a physician at a, uh, a neurologist at a receiving hospital but there's nothing really directly they can do for the stroke other than start the TPA. So we we have a, a system in place through the Louisiana Emergency Response Network called Drip and Ship, uh, where if you if your patient. Uh, uh, is a extended drive away from a, a, uh, higher tier stroke center. Uh, you take them to the closest hospital, they start the TPA infusion after they've done a, a CT scan to rule out, uh, a hemorrhagic stroke. Uh, and then you pick the patient up and you take them with TPA infusing to the other stroke center. Um, and, and that's, that's become a, a pretty common workaround in Louisiana because we don't have that many stroke centers. Uh, so it's, um, every Every paramedic uh, has the potential to to run one of those TPA calls where we think oh, we need a we need a critical care paramedic for this but no we we um it's common enough now that that uh, our, our regular medics take it
0: yeah, and I think that that's really an awesome you know lead into where I want to go next, and I think that when we think about the tools that we need and the treatment for stroke. Uh, in the field. I think that's important. And I, I want to go ahead and take a quick break here. But when we come back on the other side of the break, I want to talk about the stroke scales that we use in the field. You know, we talk about the Cincinnati pre-hospital stroke scale. We talk about the LA pre-hospital stroke scale. Kelly, and I, I want to get into a little bit of the difference that I want to mm-hmm. talk about the uh, treatment uh, and management of stroke patients in the back of the ambulance. But, you know, certainty and uncertain situations, This is one of the things you need to do your job wherever you are, and it's why Medtronic offers capnography and pulse oximetry monitoring solutions that are designed to give you early insights into your patient's breathing. Act faster and intervene sooner. Find out how at Medtronic.com slash EMS. You know, so when we think about the the tools that we need to do our job, you know, we talked about TPA, and we know that we've got to get people to the hospital uh, as quickly as we can, and you know, but not everybody gets TPA. Kelly, we know that one yeah. person, one person every forty seconds is having a stroke, and you know, so that's pretty prevalent that in our EMS career seeing stroke is something that uh, we're going to uh, probably encounter. And a lot Mm -hmm. of EMS systems, they want to be able to have some type of I don't know, a tool in place that will allow the paramedics and EMTs the opportunity to use uh, or make the determination that this is a stroke and there are two prevalent yeah. stroke scales that are out there. Um I think that the biggest one that's used in EMS is probably the Cincinnati Prehospital Stroke Scale. Uh it's the one I think that uh, I saw I've seen first in my career that was mm-hmm. uh, in many of the EMS systems. And not to be outdone, the L.A. pre-hospital stroke screen, you know, and I think it really comes down to, you know, which one your system or your medical director is going to feel comfortable with using. As I mentioned, I think Cincinnati has been the most prevalent in our career field. But Kelly, do do you have a sense of what the difference is between the two stroke scales?
1: Well, probably the the primary difference in, in the... Los Angeles and Cincinnati scales is how they test motor weakness, uh, Los Angeles, uh, pre-hospital stroke screen, um, focuses more on grip strength. Um, whereas the Cincinnati scale, uh, focuses more on pronator grip, uh, the, the classic arm grip that's com- uh, common in a, 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 hemispheric occlusive stroke. Um, there are other subtleties, but those are the, the biggest things. Um, the problem was, is those, those, both of those were, were good. The Cincinnati scale and the Los Angeles, uh, screen were, were good at identifying strokes, but they weren't so good at risk stratifying, uh, uh, the oh, that's severity. A,
0: that's of the a stroke. really, that's a really good point.
1: Yeah. They, and, and, and now though that they, they have, they, there have been modifications. I'm not quite sure about Los Angeles modifications, but, Cincinnati scale now has uh, their they have a a grading system where a higher uh, a higher level of of, of, uh, hemiplegia or or or, um, uh, motor weakness would indicate an elbow stroke uh, uh, as compared to just mild motor weakness. So now there is a tier system that you can apply to the Cincinnati Stroke Scale, but I I think that's one of the the big advances assessment wise that we've come across in recent years is that there has been a move toward uh, toward more uh, comprehensive assessment uh, of the stroke patient in the field uh, and and how to to risk stratify those patients and get them to facilities that really need it. You know, uh, some stroke patients, a, a great many occlusive stroke patients, are going to be uh, okay with a simple uh, TPA infusion, uh, but others, particularly the large vessel occlusions, are going to require. Um, uh, interventional radiology and and mechanical embolectomy or, or something along those lines uh, for those the far more devastating uh, large vessel occlusions. So we've come across these. We're starting to encounter these these newer, um, uh, more. Um, more intricate stroke scales that allow us to to determine with a greater degree of accuracy just how bad the stroke is you know we started a few years back with the with the menD exam the Miami emergency neurological deficit exam which expanded on the Cincinnati scale uh, to a large degree and, and allowed providers to to distinguish other types of stroke besides just the the one that Cincinnati and Los Angeles test for which is a hemispheric stroke you know, the MEND exam allowed you to to recognize hemorrhagic strokes, um, brainstem strokes, cerebellar strokes uh, and and distinguish between the two and what kind of management uh, difficulties you might face with each. But now we've got things like uh, the race scale uh, and the Los Angeles motor scale, which is the 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 um, update to the their uh los angeles pre-hospital stroke screen in louisiana we use something uh, different than that it's called van um the stroke van system uh where you you use the cincinnati stroke scale and add a grading system for vision aphasia and neglect and if the patient is van positive then it, there's a very high degree of incidence of of large vessel occlusion and we we um transport the patient to the uh, appropriate center according to that but um that's probably you know my my stroke assessment now is is a heck of a lot more intricate and detailed than it was back in the day when when you said you know smile show me your teeth uh, hold your hands out say the sky is blue in Cincinnati and that was all there was to it uh, now we're doing cranial nerve exams and we're we're. We're assessing uh, extraocular movement and and visual fields and and that sort of thing to look for things like neglect and and, uh, um, uh, facial paralysis and strokes as well.
0: So I just want to touch on two more points, Kelly, before we move along, wishing everybody a happy Thanksgiving. Is So, treatment, I mean, when we think about our treatment, you know, I've heard people say before, why don't we just, if it's an occlusion, why don't we just give them aspirin? Well, I mean, I think that that makes sense. You know, we give them aspirin, you know, for heart attack, but as we mentioned earlier, you know, 20% of those strokes may be hemorrhagic, and of course, if we now Mm -hmm. give somebody aspirin, we're now going to have more bleeding into the cranium, and we're going to have more problems, and we're actually hurting the patient, and we're helping them. But when we think about treatment, I mean, really what can we do I mean we think about it from the standpoint of TPA if someone is going to get TPA we need to be able to understand a couple things first off is when is the last time that we saw the patient normal if we can't answer yeah. that question that may exclude them from the process of getting a, a you know TPA treatment at that hospital but when we think about treatment we hear all the time if they're going to get TPA we can't stick them a hundred times we got to make yeah. sure that we get an IV and you know with our first stick so we don't have any challenges when they get TPA and they're going to start to Bleed, and they're not going to bleed a lot, of course. And the and the nursing staff there at the hospital are going to make sure that they control that bleeding. But so when we think about treatment, I mean, what's the most common treatment we're seeing in stroke?
1: Well, first of all, making sure it actually is a stroke, so checking a blood sugar. Um, uh, but treatment-wise, it's interesting that that um, you see most of the treatment these days is is aimed toward recognition and and transport to the appropriate stroke center. Uh, and there's not a great ALS role in stroke. As a matter of fact, in some EMS systems, I know that Bo- uh, Boston being one, that stroke is a BLS emergency. Because what are you going to change uh, in the in the treatment of a stroke, uh, stroke patient with ALS care? Uh, generally, uh, oxygen is administered judiciously, which uh, unless they need uh, advanced airway management, can easily be handled by BLS personnel. Uh, you're going to check the blood sugar, which the BLS personnel can do, uh, and the IV access. Well, you know, you just mentioned sticking the patient multiple times just so you can have an IV and say you've got one when they get to the hospital. is not really beneficial to the patient. Um, I think I think the 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 big change or the big uh, um, difference in in stroke care pre-hospitally now versus what it used to be is the the fact that we do less. Uh, You remember the days, Chris, when we used to give procardia sublingual to people and we used to aggressively manage their hypertension in the field uh, under the mistaken assumption that, you know, if we lower their blood pressure, the stroke signs would get better. Um, And as it turns out, they get worse because uh, once you've had that stroke, you need a certain degree of hypertension to to, uh, maintain cerebral perfusion. Uh, And we were creating bigger and, and more severe strokes by lowering their blood pressure. So, you know now they 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 talk about um, managing managing hypertension and stroke is is merely getting it below a threshold uh, necessary to give TPA. So um, oxygen therapy probably would be one of the big things that I still see, despite what we know about. Um, uh, free radical production and, and it's, and it's damaging effects, uh, on neurological tissue on, on neural tissue with stroke. Uh, you still see a lot of people giving high flow oxygen to stroke patients. And, and, uh, it's pretty strong evidence that that is a really, really bad thing. Just like giving high flow oxygen, uh, to STEMI patients and, and what it does, uh, adverse effects on coronary artery blood flow. Um, but that's probably uh, that the battle I fight, I, I fight amongst my colleagues most is still the oxygen thing. It's some people still out there slapping on rebreather masks on stroke patients who were satting uh, above 94 percent in the first place. So they really didn't need oxygen. I, heck, I fight that battle with some of the hospitals I transport stroke patients from. Yeah. Where The first thing you do is take the darn mask off. Right, right.
0: You know, and I think that that goes into the understanding of why we're doing things and 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 the purpose of it. So, yeah, I think this has really been informative, and I think that we've really given individuals the opportunity to have an understanding of the differences in stroke and how we're going to be able to identify. Mm-hmm. I do want to touch on one thing before we get to our close. Uh, and the reason that we started this conversation was the the distinction between Bell's palsy and stroke. Yeah. And my yeah. brother actually has had Bell's palsy for a little while, and even though that a lot of times they say that it's a temporary. I got to think that he's had it maybe for five or six years now, and basically Bell's palsy is well. They say that it's a temporary uh, facial paralysis where you'll start to see a little bit of eye mm-hmm. droop, you'll start to see a little bit of of mouth uh, droop as well, and that's what my brother has in his eye mm-hmm. and in his uh, side of his uh, on the side of his mouth. And basically, what happens here is this is something whether it's trauma or whether it is damage to the facial nerve. So we think about the seventh cranial nerve. Um, it, yeah. it, you know, th- this nerve actually goes through a little bony canal and it's right beneath the ear. And, um, you know, but it goes to the muscles of the face. So it's in this journey. It's in this bony shell that it, it where it gets, uh, you know, a little bit tight in there. Um, that's going to cause this paralysis to happen. So you mm-hmm. may see now that the facial nerve has some challenges on one side of the face when it comes to controlling the eye blink- blinking or closing. Love. Or I know my brother has every so often uh he has to dab his eye because he he can't control, you know, the he'll always have tears that are coming out of his eye. And I think that he's learned now to kind of live with it. But, you know, you still every so often look at him and know that, you know, he's never... You know, he, he's not the same that he was when he first uh, yeah. you know, when he first got it. Um, so this has been around for a long time since the 19th century. Um, mm-hmm. So when we think about this, usually Bell's palsy is something that uh, uh, fixes itself, uh, especially if it wasn't from trauma. Uh, But then you could have other symptoms as well. And you need to think about the onset when you start to do your assessment. Mm -hmm. Other symptoms could be pain behind the jaw. Uh, It could be pain behind the ear. It could be ringing in the ears and one side or both. And usually this is a one-sided thing. Of course, headache... Uh, you can have uh, uh, drooling. You could have facial droop and, you know, impaired speech. It could affect the tongue as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, again, you know, Kelly, I, I said last week when we talked about assessment, you have to become the ultimate detective of the body. And with that ultimate detection, you can make the determination of what the patient is suffering from, what your treatment and management should be, and, and where you need to get into to definitive care.
1: Yeah, you know, and, and I'll build on, on your point. Uh, if you're going to see Bell's palsy uh almost always it's going to be limited to the face you're you're not going to see Bell's palsy um and and it affect motor nerves in the body as well so when if you're only seeing facial signs uh chances are you're looking at Bell's palsy or some other type of facial uh facial nerve palsy um you're not going to see Bell's palsy affect the body and, and that's probably the primary differentiator between that and a stroke. And, and uh, the speech difficulty may be there, but if you see a patient with, with um, facial group and dysarthria, uh, which is the slurred speech because of paralysis or weakness of facial muscles, that's one thing. But if you see one with true aphasia, where they actually cannot form certain words or understand certain words because Wernicke's center and Broca's center in the brain are, are damaged by the stroke, uh, that's a different kettle of fish entirely that's not, that's not just a, a facial nerve palsy caused by a viral infection, that's an actual stroke and you need to get the patient to the stroke center but hey, that's what we think we'd like to hear what you think how's your system doing treating stroke do you have enough resources in your area and if you don't, what, what uh, mechanisms are in place to, to help uh, uh, close that gap in your resources, we'd like to hear your thoughts on the issue at the show at ems1.com and for myself and co-host Chris Ciballaro, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. you will have a happy turkey day. Catch you next week.